According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me in Matthew 24 once again, returning to the Mount Olivet Discourse, episode 12, in the last uh, Jesus' final uh, week of work at Jerusalem, episode 12, Jesus Tells the Future. Episode 12 and episode 13 combined uh, form Matthew 24 and Matthew 25, the portion of Scripture that we usually call the Mount Olivet Discourse. And so this is where we are. I left my notes on the printer at the house, so I'm going to go with uh, no notes. Might be able to. I got last week's notes. Yeah, at least give me something to work with. Let's do that. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure we are filled with the Holy Spirit, humble under the authority of truth, shall we pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. And we have so much to rejoice over on this day. Father, we give you the praise. We give you the glory. You uh, provide exceeding abundantly beyond all we could ask or think. And we thank you for that here today. We ask that that exceeding abundant provision would be made clear to us as we study to show ourselves approved. Open the eyes of our understanding, Father, to understand the truth related to uh, the coming tribulation of Israel and the second advent of your Son, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us to identify the truth of what your word reveals so that we might better be able to refute the, uh, the false approaches that uh, do such terrible damage to this text and, and, uh, and destroy, destroy families, Father. Um, guide us in the truth today. I thank you in Christ's name. Amen. You know, any false doctrine is sad, but when First Peter talks, or First Timothy talks about uh, these, these false teachers and how they upset whole families, uh, how they... Uh, you get these uh, silly women, First Timothy talks about, uh, that are weighed down with various things and they're tossed to and fro. And it's, uh, it's a terrible circumstance. And, and eschatology is, is, a, is a realm of teaching that's ripe for manipulation. And you can manipulate fear. So we have it here uh, in, let me get to Matthew 24. See to it that no one misleads you. And um, the uh, deception... And the fear manipulation are terrible things here that we're uh, that we got to deal with. Matthew 24, they got this question. They got three questions for him. Tell us when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Those are the three questions they ask in Matthew 24, 3. And remember, we've numbered them one, two, and three in the order that they, that they ask them. Jesus is going to answer them in reverse order, but and he's going to ignore question one. We'll get that answer over in the Gospel of Luke. But here in Matthew 24, the answers will come back as three, two, and he ignores question one. And so he says, see to it that no one misleads you. Eschatology is right for false teaching. And you can get people scared. You can get people off track with a bad eschatology. Many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will mislead many. You'll be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened. See that you are not frightened. We should be the, the, the most confident, stable people on the face of the earth. Our believers with a doctrine that understand that Jesus Christ controls history. So we're not worried about the credit downgrade. We're not worried about the, the uh, stock market and different things. We know who's in charge. You understand. All right. We are dealing with the answers the Lord gives. Under point seven, for those of you that have been following in each of these past five weeks now, um, under point seven, we talked about the Gospel of Matthew and the order in which the questions were asked. And now starting in point eight, we have the answers that the Lord gives. And he answers question number three first. What will be the sign of the end of the age? And he will answer that sign. He will answer that question in two parts. First of all, he describes the not yet circumstances. And that's what we're looking at. We're still dealing with the not yet circumstances. And then he will follow it up with the actual sign of the end. And we'll get there today. We'll discuss the sign of the end, the abomination that causes desolation that Daniel the prophet spoke of. Uh, Jesus himself uh, 
corresponds to what Daniel wrote. And we've got to put these things together if we're going to rightly divide the word of truth. Rightly dividing the word of truth means rightly comparing the word of truth. Putting a scripture together with scripture. Allowing the Bible to interpret itself. Uh, failure to do that uh, forces a human contradiction into the Bible that doesn't belong in the Bible. See, if you fail to harmonize the various passages that address a certain subject, then you're introducing your own flaws to the issue. And hopefully you understand that. So question number three, this is point eight. What will be the sign of the end of the age? Jesus answers by the not yet circumstances. It's verses four through 14 of this chapter in Matthew 24. He answers by the not yet circumstances followed by the sign of the end in uh, verses 15 through 28. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Now, under this, we've had subpoints A, B, and C, and D. We're ready now for E. Skipping on down here, the wars and rumors of wars, the beginnings of birth pangs, nations and kingdoms. We read quite a bit from Arnold Fruchtenbaum last week. He uh, makes a compelling, if not conclusive, study. He relates the wars and rumors of wars, uh, the nation against nation, kingdom of against kingdom. He, <coughs> he teaches a pretty confident uh, conviction that that verse is speaking of World War I and World War II. I don't share that. I, I don't share that conviction. I understand the, the emphasis he's making, but I don't share that conviction. I don't need to, to uh, prove that that's World War I and World War II in that verse to know that we're in the end times. I know we're in the end times. All right? I know that with the establishment of the state of Israel, we are closer to the state of Israel signing a treaty with Antichrist. <laughs> and I know that uh, there's still some things remaining. Like they've got to build a temple. For the Antichrist to defile. All right. So there's another step that hasn't happened yet, but we're close to that step. Different things there. Natural disasters are normal occurrences. So we have earthquakes and famines. All right. Let's not get weird about it. Let's not plunge into sensationalism and say, ooh, you know, this tsunami in Japan must have been spoken of by some prophet somewhere. No, we've always had earthquakes. We've always had famines. We've always had storms, natural disasters. As we watch them intensify, if we can properly watch them intensify, we may um, feel like that's an indicator that, uh, that there's something uh, approaching. Because Jesus does mention that you will be seeing, um, as you look at, where are the famines and the earthquakes? Uh, right there in verse 7. In various places, there will be famines and earthquakes. So he does mention that you should observe those. And, and as you observe them, as they're intensifying, as they're getting worse, coming more faster, you can say, all right, we are in the beginnings of birth pains, but we're not yet at the end. We're not at the end until you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet. Until you see that in the holy place, we're not in the end yet. We're still in the beginnings of birth pains, and that's where we are. Okay. Understand the beginning of birth pangs are not the actual birth pangs spoken of throughout prophetic literature. We went through Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah. Even the Apostle Paul uses birth pangs as his um, metaphor for the tribulation of Israel. All right, we're ready now for new ground. Main point or sub point E. This is still under main point eight. The Lord is answering what will be the sign of the end of the age. Global anti-Semitism. Global anti-Semitism will exhibit the greatest ever attempted suicide. Global anti-Semitism will exhibit the greatest ever attempted genocide. This will put Hitler to shame. This will be on a scale that will make everything that preceded it uh, incomparable. Not even in the conversation compared to what it will be like. It's described in unique terminology in Matthew 24 verses 9 through 14. In Mark 13, it's described this way in verses 9 through 13. And in Luke 21, it's uh, verses 12 through 19. They will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations because of my name. Now, you know, imagine what Nazi Germany did. And that's just one nation. Now, admittedly, they were able to extend their reach into Austria and into Poland and into Ukraine. There's a terrible Jewish massacre in Ukraine. Um, in fact, 
I've been to Kiev four times, and every time I say, I'm going to go, I'm going to go visit this place, I'm going to go visit this place, and, and I still have not done so. But there is a uh, concentration camp and, a, and, a, uh, and an execution uh, ravine, a valley ravine, really, in the northwest uh, section of Kiev, and I intend to see it someday. Um, but that's just one nation, okay, or five nations, or however many that, uh, you know, came under the Nazi regime and, and were engaged in that kind of thing. This says all nations. You will be hated by all nations because of my name. Of course, flag-waving patriotic American citizens don't like that. They will say, well, that can't be true. We would never do that. Obviously, that has to exclude the United States of America. Well, I'll look again. But I don't see a footnote. I don't see, uh, you know, <laughs> an exemption in the Greek. All means all, right? If you're trying to tell me that all doesn't mean all, then what does that, uh, what does that do for all your sins which have been forgiven, huh? don't think we want to have that discussion. So all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away. In other words, their response to the massacre is to um, capitulate, to fail, to deny. Many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. And because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Please, by the time we walk out of here today, everyone here is going to be equipped to understand that that verse, uh, the, the context and setting for that verse is tribulational, related to the, uh, the, the genocidal murders of, uh, of uh, the Jewish race specifically, but any born-again believer as well, there'll be Gentiles martyred and persecuted as well. Um, understand that the one who endures to the end means the one that is going through hell on earth, the one that is going through tribulation, the one that is waiting for second advent of Jesus Christ. That's what you're enduring to the end. You're going to be rescued when Jesus Christ returns. It has nothing to do with today and an application today trying to stay saved, trying to not lose your salvation. Although you may have Wesleyan... Uh, uh, Armenian Methodist type churches and people saying, uh, you know, they use that. You've got to endure the end to be saved so because they're <clears throat> working hard to try to not lose what they got for free. Does that make sense? <laughs> you didn't you didn't pay to get it. Why, why are you working so hard to not lose it? All right, here's what we're dealing with. Now, <clears throat> understand this is nothing new, but it is unparalleled in its intensity and scope. From Pharaoh to Haman to Hitler to Antichrist. No attempt to exterminate the Jews can succeed. It's impossible. From Pharaoh. What do you think he was doing when he ordered the execution of all the. The boys, not the girls, but the boys. Exodus one verses 15 and 16. And of course, Moses parents had faith and put him in a basket and. Floated him on down the Nile and uh, Pharaoh's daughter found him. You know the story. I don't think we have to turn there this morning. Haman in the book of Esther and the uh, law that he signed, the law that he passed. Do we have someone in the nursery this morning? Okay, someone's walking in. All right. Well, what was Haman's deal in Esther chapter 3 and verse 6? Executing the Jewish people. What was Hitler doing? And I could have listed, you know, a dozen or more in between, <laughs> right? How many times have uh, the Jews been uh, persecuted? Have they been executed? The attempts made to exterminate them. Join me in Jeremiah 31. You'll see this wonderful promise. Jeremiah 31, verses 35 through 37. When you think Jeremiah 31, you th you're thinking New Covenant, aren't you? Because 31, 31 is the New Covenant that's promised. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this new covenant, when it comes along, is contrasted with Moses, contrasted with the, the covenant of works, right? 
which was not absolute. It was not unconditional. It was very conditional. And it was uh, a covenant which they broke time and time again. That Mosaic covenant given at Sinai was not designed to be the permanent, eternal, forever covenant basis upon which God was going to deal with Israel. It is not the, uh, the, the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant that preceded it. In fact, it's, it's at odds with the Abrahamic covenant in a lot of ways because it's so conditional. Abrahamic covenant is unconditional. And so uh, you have uh, different things there. Now, not like the Mosaic covenant, which I made with their fathers and the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. See, a breakable covenant is a problem. <laughs> a conditional covenant is going to be a, a broken covenant very quickly when humans fail. God, of course, will always uphold his end of things, but humans are going to fail. And so a new covenant. This is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. And why does the church try to lay claim to this? Does it say church? No, it says Israel. And likewise, in verse 31, the house of Israel with the house of Judah. The time Jeremiah was speaking was a divided kingdom. But when it's, when it's promised in the second advent, it'll be reunited once again into the house of Israel. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they will not teach again each man his neighbor, each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. And this is the national blessing that Israel has to look forward to in the second advent in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. Thus says the Lord in verse 35, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord. Then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. You want to destroy the Jewish people? You've got to destroy the sun, moon, and stars. <laughs> Start with that. Then if you can knock that out as the easy item, then you can destroy the Jews as the harder item. And this, I, I just love it. Arnold Fruchenbaum uses this. He, he actually teaches a, uh, <laughs> he teaches a module called How to Destroy the Jews does that on a conference basis and he's so funny when he does it too because he usually shows up on night one and he introduces the subject and he says now i want you to hold off to the last night of the conference because i'm jewish and and i want you to make sure you understand the doctrine first before you try to destroy me <laughs> but by the last night you're going to understand how to do it and then hopefully he, he jokes some more he says hopefully uh, you'll understand it properly if not i'll leave as quickly as i can to <laughs> get off the stage all right but this is what it's about. Now, why is it that Satan is so um, bent, determined to destroy the Jewish people? What would that accomplish? Why, would he get pleasure out of that? Would it, uh, would it serve a goal of his own? What would it do? What would be the, the value? What's the, the whole? Is it mindless? Is there no point to it? There's got to be a point to it. What is the value? So there would be no more throne of David. That's, uh, sure, that's part of it. Oh, yeah, definitely the coming of Christ in the millennium, yeah. Mom's answer was closer. Sid? Almost. Almost. Mom still had the closest answer. Uh, I'll get to... Let's see. I'm holding off on Doug. I think Doug might know. Okay, Doug. And then Dan. If Doug doesn't know, Dan might know. Go ahead, Doug. What does he accomplish? Mm -hmm. In his mind. That's right. In his mind. Is that what you were going to say? The whole point being is that um, this, this justifies his own rebellion. This justifies his own claim to be like God. Um, and to invalidate even one promise. The point being is that God promised that they would be a people forever. And so if he can destroy those people, even if he can eliminate a single tribe, when you think about it, all the tribes have their own promises too. So even if he was to succeed in eliminating one 
one-twelfth of Israel or one-thirteenth of Israel, he still can view that as a victory because then he could point to a promise God made that God did not keep. All right? And all he needs is one promise. The moment he has one promise that God makes and does not keep, then he feels that he can justify his departure from God because I shall be like the Most High God. And his plan for accomplishing that is trying to prove that God is actually like him. That God is actually a liar. All right? And if he can prove that God is a liar, then he, in his mind, has achieved his goal to be like God because he has proven God to be like him. Does that make sense? Now, if you think about the pride behind there's no tempter that tempted Satan to fall. Satan's fall is worse than Adam's fall because of that. No tempter caused Satan to fall. Satan fell in his own pride and his own rebellion and his own internal uh, wickedness. But, you know, you think about, um, <laughs> think about uh, younger siblings and older siblings, right? And, uh, you know, we could tell, uh, we could tell uh, when I was growing up, we could, Mary and Matthew and I could concoct a story. We could tell Elizabeth about how, um, you know, she was left on our doorstop in a basket. And the, the police uh, asked us if we would watch this baby because of, you know, her murderer parents were in prison. And, you know, as the older siblings... How would she know? I mean, she knew us, so she knew we were lying, teasing. But, but the point being, well, we were here first. We saw you when you got here. Right? And understand that now all the angels were created. And God starts to reveal himself to those whom he created. And he reveals himself as the eternal God, the uncaused, uncreated creator. And pride, like in Satan, starts to say, well, wait a minute. How do we know that? I mean, sure, you were here when we got here, but that doesn't mean you've been here forever. Who created you? And so this is part of the, the evil and the darkness, the, the poison, where if, if you remember, if your whole orientation is about magnifying self, what's the most common way people magnify themselves today? They tear other people down, <laughs> Right. I mean, I know you're not going to disagree with me. I, you know, I'll go to your workplace and find five people that. <laughs> that's how they live. That's how this world works. And so Satan, to build himself up, tearing God down. God's just a creature like us. He's, he's bent on proving it. And all he has to do is prove one lie that God utters. One promise he can't fulfill. One boast See, Satan feels he doesn't have to do all five of his. He just has to have God fail on one. And then, yep, see? And he's justified in his mind for his own rebellion. Anyway, there's more on that. Um, You get glimmers of it in Isaiah. You get glimmers of it in in Ezekiel. I think where you really get glimmers of it is in the book of Job. In the uh, information that that comes through Job's accusers and comes through... uh, their understanding of God's justice. The courtroom setting of the book of Job, I think, spells out for us the full backstory to Satan's rebellion. And look forward to doing more studies on that. All right. Yes, Satan is dedicated to destroying the Jewish people. And that's uh, a big part of thwarting God's plan or uh, validating his own rebellion. Now, who are the they? Did you ask yourself that when we read it in Matthew 24, 9? You know what they say. Well, who's, who's they, right? I hate it when I'm told, well, they say. All right. There is an interesting they. I think in context we can identify it as the misled many. As the misled many. When you, when you glance back up to previous verses, and all of a sudden it just says, okay, but they will deliver you. So then you start backing up and you got... In the context, well, who's the they? Is it the, it's not the nations? Is it the kingdoms? Is it the wars? Is it the, oh, wait a minute, verse 5, the many. Here we go. Many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. So now we've got two options. We could have the misled many, or we could have the many false Christs, or a combination of the two. <coughs> I think it's the misled many serving the false Christ. So it's actually both the many false Christs and 
the misled many from verse 5. But uh, to be technical, the misled many is the nearest antecedent to the they will deliver you to tribulation. So they are the misled many serving false Christ, persecuting the followers of the only begotten, pursuing the followers of the one true Christ. You know, there's one true Christ and uh, <clears throat> they rejected him during the age of grace, during the church. He took his bride out and now, now these false Christs are permitted to arise. The restraint is lifted. Antichrist can be unveiled. All of his legion of false Christs can go forth as well. And uh, the people that just follow after, just swallow it hook, line, and sinker. And they think they're doing God's work by putting these others to death. Didn't Paul think he was doing God's work when he was traveling to Damascus and when he was arresting Christians? Those were the way he thought he was doing God's work. He would have been in that crowd saying, Lord, Lord, I did this, I did that. He thought he was doing God's work. The misled many never underestimate the uh, danger of uh, of a zealot with bad doctrine. All right. And uh, being led into false teaching and motivated to do all kinds of things. When you fall away from the faith, first Timothy says you're paying attention to deceitful spirits. Second Timothy says you're paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. And this is what we're going to see here in the beginning of birth pangs. We're still not even into the tribulation yet. We actually have murder, we have persecution, we have all of these, and things haven't even gotten bad yet. Not till the abomination of desolation, not till the great tribulation. This is just warming up. Tribulation and death will use religious, political, and judicial mechanisms. Tribulation and death, we're told in verse 9. They will deliver you to tribulation and they will kill you. It'd be nicer if they could just kill me first and skip the tribulation, right? <laughs> nope, tribulation and death. And they're going to use religious, political, and judicial mechanisms. Does that make it any better? You know, it is remarkable the lengths that a carnal mind will go to to justify what they're doing, to find a legal way to do it. Think about how many fellow citizens you know that would never stick a gun to your head and, <clears throat> and, and demand your wallet. They would be horrified at that. That's armed robbery. That's outrageous. That's stealing. That's wrong. <clears throat> Their ethical structure of whatever says that's bad. <clears throat> but they can vote for politicians who will use the power of government to steal from their fellow citizens. Oh, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> In fact, that's admirable. That's, that's, that's laudatory. Oh, yeah. So what's the difference? Because we used a political and judicial mechanism? Jezebel finds a couple of slanderers to offer false testimony so they can execute Nabal and, and uh, Naboth uh, and, uh, and they can seize the land. <laughs> yeah, let's just use judicial and legal mechanism to take what we want. Or religious mechanisms. And they're all spelled out here. Um, probably more specifically, let's look at Mark 13. This is one of those cases where <coughs> the parallel gospel records have uh, a little bit more uh, specific terms than what we find in Matthew. Mark 13, verses 9 through 11. Again, uh, wars and rumors of wars, nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, earthquakes, famines. These are merely the beginning of birth pangs. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts. And you will be flogged in the synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake. Now notice, as a testimony to them. And this is where I love what God does in His permissive will. He permits the tribulation. He permits the affliction. He permits these terrible things to happen. But as they happen, He is going to accomplish His objective. Not the mob's objective. Not Satan's objective. Like when He permitted Satan to afflict Job. He allowed it to happen, but not for Satan's reasons. He allowed it to happen for His reasons. Same thing here. 
as a testimony for my sake, as a testimony to them. And think about the opportunity they're going to have to be able to speak the truth in front of a judge, in front of an executioner, in front of every officer that arrests them. You know, how many came to Christ and the Philippian jailer and others in, in jail facilities because of, uh, because of Paul's various imprisonments? All right. So it's for my sake. He goes on to say the gospel must first be preached to all the nations or all the Gentiles. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say what is, whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Now, this gets abused a lot by some Christians, and I, I want to encourage you. Um, this is discussing the tribulational martyrs specifically. If we have an application today, it would be an application in our own martyrdom, in our own uh, persecution. So if you find yourself uh, in, in, a, in a persecution set, setting, relax. God put you there. God's going to work in you. You're where God wants you. That's what this is saying. But some people use this to say, I, I've, heard, I've had Pentecostals tell me, I'm wasting my time learning Greek and learning Hebrew. And I don't have to study. I can just get up in the pulpit and... If I have, now here's the key, I've got to have enough faith. problem is I have too little faith and then I don't do the right faith healing and I don't cast out demons. But if I have the right kind of faith, I can apply this verse. I don't have to worry about what I'm going to say or what I'm going to speak. It'll come to me. The Holy Spirit will just speak through me in that hour. Okay? Well, you see where the danger is and how this gets abused? And if you take one verse all by itself and you rip it from its context... And you twist what it's really saying. And then you ignore all these other verses of Scripture, like study to show yourself approved. <laughs> okay? If you ignore all these other verses of Scripture and you're just going to build a, a concept on one passage you're, you're twisting, that's a problem. And you all know that. All right. I mean, this is just basic hermeneutics at this point. How do you interpret the Bible? How do you study? How do you teach? How do you feed the flock? You will be hated. Uh, let's see, where do I leave off? Uh, verse 12. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. And children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. Now understand that in the tribulation, we're back under the stewardship of Israel. And understand that in the stewardship of Israel, not only is uh, the, the uh, community of faith, uh, the, your, your, your redeemed uh, fellow members, like we would talk about today about brothers and sisters in Christ, but under the Israel stewardship, not only do you have the body of redeemed and that kind of a fellowship, but you also have family and clan and cultural links. It, it blends together. It absolutely blends together. That's why when a Jewish person com today comes to faith in Christ, it's considered treason. It's considered you're a traitor to uh, to your family, to your parents, to your, to your uh, to what's expected of you. A lot of that's built into Roman Catholicism, too. A lot, of, a lot of folks have a hard time. They know that the teaching's bad, but their parents, their grandparents, their culture, it's all expected. Their, their godparents and their, the various holidays and the various gatherings, it's just there's so much culture attached to it, they really struggle. And a lot of times they just keep going to Mass anyway just to participate in the culture and participate in the family. And, and then they uh, get tapes or listen to websites or do what they can to try to get some teaching on top of what they're not getting in uh, in their other area. So, brother will betray brother to death, and a father is child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And remember, this is all beginnings of birth pains. We haven't even reached the betrayal yet. I, I think, ultimately, that whatever deal they sign, whatever seven-year deal they sign, the pact with the devil they make, I think they are so indebted to him. He guarantees that they can have their sacrifices. He guarantees they can build this temple. They, they owe this to Him. He's just their Savior. And you see how seductive that becomes. What's their attitude going to be towards Him in these first three and a half years? All right. And then once again, you will be hated by all because of My name. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. And once again, this is detailing the Affliction and persecution, tribulation. If you can make it to Second Advent, 
And you can start counting those days down. I mean, there is a calendar for that. You just have to endure to the end. Tribulation and death will use religious, political, and judicial mechanisms. Fourthly, world hatred. I want you to notice something, though. World hatred will be specifically because of the name of Jesus Christ. And that is unique to the tribulation of Israel. World hatred will be specifically because of the name of Jesus Christ. All three synoptic gospels testify to this. Matthew 24, 9, Mark 13, 13, Luke 21, 17. All three gospels account that the motivation for the hatred is the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, Hitler did not execute Jews for the name of Jesus Christ or because they were defending the name of Jesus Christ. They weren't. They were not. And as a nation, they never have. But as a nation, they will. Remember, the, the, the first saved after the rapture are going to be those 144,000 Jewish evangelists. In the tribulation, in these early three and a half years of, of beginning of birth pangs, the, the primary evangelism effort globally is going to be a Jewish evangelism effort teaching the name of Jesus Christ. Isn't that awesome? Absolutely awesome. And uh, that becomes the motivation for the hatred, for their persecution, for their death. And we see it in all three gospel accounts. I think my slides are different than my notes. That's okay. Point five. Family and culture ties will be rendered meaningless as betrayal will come from even the closest relationships. Family and cultural ties will be rendered meaningless as betrayal will come from even the closest relationships. This includes apostasy by fellow believers. Remember we read in Matthew 24, many will fall away. Many will fall away. Unbelievers cannot apostatize. Unbelievers cannot fall away. You know that. Only believers can apostatize. So when it says many will fall away, we have this. Apostasy by fellow believers and hostility from unbelieving family members. Hostility from unbelieving family members. The apostasy by fellow believers is Matthew 24, verses 10 through 12. We just saw Mark 13, 12. We have not yet turned to Luke 21:16, but it's largely similar to the Mark account. You know, uh, even I, I'm using Hitler a lot, but they had at least they had family to stick together with while they were being abused, while they were being massacred, while they were being taken away. This is going to be so much worse because even family is going to turn against family. Those that are willing to capitulate, those that actually are supportive of the, of the beast, those who take his mark, those who cooperate, then become the agents of the continued persecution. They cooperate with the beast and they, they, they're working for him. And it's just horrible. I think the same thing happens today. Satan loves it when he can use uh, one of our own inside of a local church to... Um, to plunge into darkness and, and start doing damage. That's the best tool. That's one of his favorite devices. Start manipulating somebody on the inside to sow discord among brothers. So family and cultural ties will be rendered meaningless as betrayal will come from even the closest relationships. Mm, what a day that's going to be, huh? Now you realize we're not going to see any of this. The church is gone. The rapture takes us home. But consider if you uh, have friends or family members, loved ones that are still without Christ, without hope, without eternal life. This is the world they're about to enter into. And they could enter into it tomorrow if the trumpet sounds today. All right. Enduring to the end, point six. Enduring to the end is not an Arminian theological justification. <laughs> you know what I mean by that? 
the broad divisions of Calvinist theology and Arminian theology. Arminian theology believes you can lose your salvation. And that's the uh, theology that underlies Wesleyanism today. So Methodists, Free Methodists, uh, Nazarenes, Church of Nazarenes. Many of your uh, Assembly of God, uh, Church of God in Christ, many of those uh, groups are also Arminian in their, uh, in their theology. Working hard to stay saved. Nope. Enduring to the end is not a proof text for losing your salvation. Enduring to the end is a dispensational encouragement to the enduring remnant in the tribulation. It is a dispensational encouragement to the enduring remnant in the tribulation. They're going to be able to know. They're going to be able to mark their calendars. 1,260 days is 42 months, is three and a half years. And you've got two periods of three and a half years. And from the signing of the treaty with Antichrist, from that point forward, you've got a final seven-year span to count. 1,260 days twice is 2,520 days. And they can start counting days. From the maximum amount of time it will be before Christ returns. Well, guess what? That's actually going to get cut short. We'll see that here in this text. Um, that's how you can have a pinpoint accurate day. And at the same time, you can also have, I'm coming as a thief. I'm coming quickly. Because there will be a cutting short. And so both promises are true. We'll get to it quick enough, but you'll notice in verse 20 of, of Mark 13. or it's, also in, it's in all three of the gospel records. But unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. We'll talk about how uh, when he returns as a thief, how it's actually slightly ahead of the 1,260 days of the second three and a half years of tribulation. How much shorter? Don't know. Is it 10 days early? Five days early? Could it be 30 days early? Doesn't say. We don't know. They can preserve a sense of imminency in coming as a thief that way. And uh, hopefully we understand that as well. So enduring to the end. Am I clear on that? No one's confused. Enduring to the end doesn't mean you've got to work hard to stay saved. Okay, He's talking to those that are suffering in the tribulation. The martyrdom, the persecution, the death. And the things that we see there. Alright, which now gets us to the sign of the end. Point F. The sign of the end. So in your notes... This is still answering question number three. What is the sign of the end? He started with the wars and rumors of wars, the sign, the not yet sign. Now he's talking about the actual sign. The sign of the end. Let me get back to Matthew 24. And remember, all through this, we have the not yet, not yet, not yet. Now all of a sudden we have, if you endure to the end, and then in verse 14, the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then... The end will come. Now we're ready for the sign of the end. Verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place. Is there a holy place today? No. So that's another one of those preparation things that has to happen between now and then, isn't it? It doesn't have to happen before the rapture, but it does have to happen before Antichrist signs the treaty with Israel. So it could be after the rapture, before the treaty. It could be before the rapture. doesn't have to be. Like the, the reestablishment of the state of Israel, 1948. I finally remembered. <laughs> the reestablishment of the state of Israel. It had to happen before the tribulation because uh, so he could sign the treaty in Daniel 9. Didn't mean that it had to happen before the rapture. It didn't have to happen in the church age, but it did. We're okay with that. Setting the table for uh, the fulfillment of prophecy. Not the fulfillment, but setting the table for it. All right, so here's the sign. When you see what Daniel spoke of. Well, Daniel spoke of this a lot in chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 11, chapter 12. And as he spoke of it, he spoke of it in a couple of different ways. So we've got to understand how he spoke of it and what Jesus is speaking of here. So when you see it standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Oh, that's a powerful parenthesis. Now, did Jesus actually say those words? No, I think it was added by the author. It was added by Matthew. 
His actual spoken narrative was, when you see the abomination standing in the holy place, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. But it is interesting, under the Holy Spirit's inspiration, as this text was put together, Matthew, Mark, and, well, not Luke, but Matthew and Mark, put that, let the reader understand right in there. It's a powerful way that the Holy Spirit is linking this message to the book of Daniel. All right? So, What is the sign of the end? It's the abomination of desolation. Plain and simple. Plain and simple. It's not Obama. We are not an Obama nation. There's a lot of jokes about it. I appreciate that. It's, I, I, I like plays on words and puns. Things of that nature. So it's easy to do. It's easy to do. But Badalugma is a lot harder to, to work with. <laughs> to make a pun or a word play on Bedeligma. Tes eremosaos. I'm not going to do a lot of vocabulary on this. Abomination of desolation, spoken of in Daniel 9, verses 27, referenced here again. So join me in Daniel 9. Let's take a look at it. When you see that, run. Those who are in Judea must flee the mountains. Run and hide. Run and hide. That seems pretty simple. Especially since Jesus is not alone in this. Daniel talks about it. Jesus talks about it. The Apostle John talks about it. All right. Somebody took Daniel out of my Bible. There it is. Daniel 9. Starting in verse 24. 77s have been decreed for your people. In your holy city. Speaking of Daniel then, who are Daniel's people? The Jews. What's Daniel's holy city? Jerusalem. So how could this possibly apply to the church? <laughs> are we Daniel's people? Is he us? Are we him? Where's our holy city? We don't have a holy city. We ourselves, in fact, are a temple of the Holy Spirit. All right. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement of iniquity, for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. There are six objectives that will be achieved in 77s. But they're not all going to be done at once. In fact, there will be 69 of them complete, and then a break until the 70th one is done. Verse 25 says, So you are know, to know and discern. Let the reader understand. Okay, you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince, there will be seven and sixty two. Any math majors here? <laughs> All right. Sixty nine weeks, seven and sixty two. What happened to week 70? Well, you, you, we get to week 70 down in verse twenty seven. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62, which you understand is after the 7, we clear on that. After the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. Jesus Christ is crucified. That's Messiah the Prince. Cut off and have nothing. I find it remarkable that he's Messiah the Prince. He's not Messiah the King. He's not yet crowned King. Jesus Christ in his first advent was humble, not yet crowned King. Nevertheless, he's Messiah. And, and note, it does not say during the 70th week. It says after the 62nd. So there's, this verse demands that there's a gap in between the first 69 weeks and week number 70. Because this is after the 62nd week, Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And we don't get to the 70th week until verse 27. He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. And so there it is. But now notice what else happens in between week 69 and week 70. We already saw the crucifixion is one item. What else happens there in that verse? The people of the coming prince will destroy the city and the sanctuary. That happened in 70 A.D. So we have 33 A.D. with the crucifixion of Messiah the prince. And then we have the destruction of the city in 70 A.D. 33 year, 37 years later. 
and its end will come with a flood, even to the end there will be war, desolations are determined. But now notice. Um, you have Messiah the Prince, but you also have the people of the coming Prince, the Prince who is to come. And that's who we have in verse 27. He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. That's the Prince who is to come. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. So he's the big hero for the first three and a half years. Woohoo! This great man. He allows us to our sacrifices and our grain offering. They haven't had they haven't had sacrifices since 70 A.D. They want them. They're building furnishings for it now. They're training Kohen and Levi priests now. They're sewing garments today, waiting for the time they can build their temple on the Temple Mount. They're going to be so excited, this man's going to let them do it. But three and a half years into it, on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that a decreed complete destruction is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So this is what uh, Jesus is warning about. when he, This is the abomination of desolation here in verse 27. Not verse 26, desolations are determined. But verse 27, the abominations that make desolate. It's, this, it's verse 27 that's quoted. The Septuagint of verse 27 that's quoted in Matthew 24. All right, not the desolations are determined from verse 26. See, people that try to say, oh, this was 70 A.D., Revelation was over in 70, the preterist view, that's not looking for a future millennium. They try to say, oh, well, Jesus was talking about 70 A.D. Or, an even greater lunacy, they say, oh, Jesus was talking about the Maccabean era. Well, Jesus isn't that stupid. The Maccabean era was 300 years before him. Okay? Or 200 years before him. 167 B.C. to 33 A.D. All right. So the abomination of desolation is the sign of the end. The abomination had a foreshadowing in the days of Antiochus, the fourth, surnamed Epiphanes. The abomination had a foreshadowing in the days of Antiochus, but the ultimate fulfillment remains future. The ultimate fulfillment remains future. It has to. Jesus speaks of it as a future event in Matthew 24. The Apostle Paul speaks of it as a future event in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So Epiphanes could not have been the fulfillment of what Daniel was preaching on. In fact, Daniel preached on both the foreshadowing and the reality. Daniel preached about the, the shaggy goat in chapter 8. He, he knew about the coming Greek empire. We'll look at each one of these as well. The abomination had a foreshadowing in the days of Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Daniel 8.13, Daniel 11.31. This is not Bible, but it is reliable history. 1 Maccabees chapter 1, verses 54 through 58. It is not Bible. It is not God-breathed. It is not inspired. But it is very much compatible, consistent with Josephus. It's consistent with the other uh, records, the contemporary records we have at the time. Philo, Josephus, other contemporaries. And uh, no one uh, disputes that uh, we got excellent uh, history there in uh, in first Maccabees. In Daniel eight, verse thirteen, I just want to show you some of the <laughs> Yeah, I'm gonna take six minutes to show you all the vast prophecies of Daniel. Well we'll come back to this next week. But I want you to see something. In Daniel 8.13, you've got a, a horn. And this is a shaggy goat. This represents Greece who's coming to, uh, to destroy Persia. And um, goodness. I also want to go back and read chapter 7. I can't do that. Not in three minutes. Um, so here in chapter 8, Daniel has a dream. There's this goat, this shaggy goat. And he's going to come and he's going to kill the ram. There's a ram with two horns, a long horn and a short horn. And uh, this represents the media Persia empire. And uh, the ram was budding westward and northward and other beasts couldn't stand before him. But now here comes a male goat in verse 5 of chapter 8. 
And Amilcar was coming from the west. Coming from the west. Critical that you understand. Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Babylon and Persia are east, but Greece and Rome move it west. Eschatology goes west, not east. A male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. And he came up to the ram that, held the two, that had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, rushed at him in his mighty wrath. I saw him come beside him, uh, beside the ram. He was enraged at him, and he struck the ram and shattered the two horns. And the ram had no strength to withstand him, so he hurled him to the ground and was trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power." Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly. This is Alexander the Great. This big horn is Alexander the Great. The goat is Greece. All right. But as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken. Alexander dies at the age of, I think, 33. Um, And in its place, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. After Alexander dies, of course, this is all prophecy ahead of time, but history tells us after Alexander dies, no one successor keeps his entire domain. The four leading generals will divide it amongst them, including Ptolemy in Egypt and uh, Antiochus or Seleucid rather in uh, in uh, Seleucia, king of the north, king of the south and a couple of others. There's four of them total. Now, one out of one of them specifically Seleucia, came forth a rather small horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, toward the beautiful land. And it grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall down to the earth and it trampled them down. That boggles the mind. The impact that he had in the angelic realm. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host. And it removed the regular sacrifice from him. And the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. And on account of the transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice and will fling truth to the ground and perform it its will and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, how long will the vision about the regular sacrifices apply while the transgression causes horror? Now, that's very similar language, not exactly but similar to abomination of desolation. While the transgression causes horror, so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled. And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. Now this is the prophecy of Antiochus Epiphanes. This is the foreshadowing. But this isn't the end of the story. Because Jesus says in 33 A.D., there is still a future abomination of desolation spoken of through Daniel the prophet. So don't be confused with the foreshadowing and the reality. That would be just as ridiculous as confusing Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac with Jesus on the cross. The one foreshadows the other. And you would have to be, I think you'd have to be just a blithering idiot to try to say as well as all the same thing. Right? So let's not confuse the foreshadowing with the fulfillment. And that's what's spoken of there. Over to chapter 11. In a very comprehensive message. This is a long chapter and the specific verse we're looking for is verse 31, forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress and do away with the regular sacrifice and they will set up the abomination of desolation. Slightly different expression in from the Hebrew that we have here than what we have in in Daniel nine. Close, very similar. Septuagint is a little bit different. And uh, the one that's being quoted in Matthew 24 is the one in chapter nine, not the one here. Uh, Because this is Antiochus. This is Antiochus here again, like we saw in chapter 8. And likewise, 1 Maccabees 1, 54 through 58. I'll save that for next week. But the ultimate fulfillment remains future. Daniel 11, 36 through 39 is future. Matthew 24 is future. 2 Thessalonians 2 is future. Cannot apply to the Maccabean era. The Antiochus fulfillment is a foreshadowing. It is not the, uh, the fulfillment of what Jesus is warning them about. Thank you, Father, for your truth. Your word is truth. Many of these studies, Father, make our heads spin. 
We, try, we want to study to show ourselves approved and we want to learn a little here, a little there. Help us, Father, not to get lost in the details, but help us just to sort out the truth, the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Thank you, Father, for the study. Thank you, Father, for believers that are committed to being diligent to study. And I thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. All right, folks.